Whoop, tide's coming in. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Did you hear about a bottle that washed up on this beach back in the 1940s? I'd heard these horrible stories. He was, he was crass, he would cuss out the food, but he would still come back like twice a week. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and things we happen upon completely by chance. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. I've got this idea from a fairy tale when I was just a little boy. Today I'm 21 years old. One fateful night, he was finally sat in my section and I was, I was super nervous. When two people meet, Sometimes extraordinary things happen. And sometimes extraordinary things happen in order for two people to meet. It's almost as though the world has an inkling of this and actually tilts on its own axis to slide these people toward one another. Such seems the fate of these chance encounters. Today on ReSound, a message in a bottle washes up on shore literally, and two people's lives are forever changed. And in another story, a famously grumpy cafe customer turns out to be the strangest fairy godfather ever. Stay tuned. If there's any plot line more cliche than a message in a bottle love story, I've never heard of it. Growing up in Chicago, I have vague memories of putting a message in a bottle as a kid, corking it up and tossing it into the water. But the water was Lake Michigan, and the farthest it would wash up would be, if I was lucky, Gary, Indiana. I certainly never ended up with a sensational relationship covered in detail by the international press. But someone did. Peter Mulryan of RTE Radio in Ireland tells the story. Here we are. Wow. This is the beach. This is the strand where the bottle washed up back in 1946. And it's rather beautiful. I'm at Kennard Strand, about three miles outside Dingle. And I've come here today to meet Tom Fitzgerald, whose first cousin found that message in a bottle. Yes, uh, I suppose a lot of it is a little bit hazy now. You know, a long time ago, 60 years ago. Tom spent weekends with his first cousin, Breda O'Sullivan, in the townland of Kennard West, a couple of hundred metres inland from the sea. And in wartime Ireland, all kinds of things washed up on shore. And the amount of treasure that would get washed up on the beach at that time from the war outside was unbelievable, you know. But during that time, my uh, first cousin, Rita, she discovered <laughs> a rare piece of treasure. And I suppose at that time it was really, really rare because she found a bottle on the beach and there was a message in the bottle. Christmas Day, 1945. Dear Finder, probably this bottle or note shall never be found, but I'll just send it out anyhow. Just in case by some coincidence someone finds this, I would appreciate it if the Finder drops me a line. 
I've got this idea from a fairy tale when I was just a little boy. Today I'm 21 years old, but my conscience has guided me to do this. Anyway, I think it would be nice to have a correspondence through this new system. At this time, I am aboard the SS James Ford Rhodes. It is a Liberty ship. We had gone to Le Havre, France to bring soldiers home that helped to fight our World War II. We were to have them home for this day, which is Christmas. We ran into three days of bad weather, so that is why we are now spending Christmas on the Atlantic Ocean. I have no reward to offer the finder of this bottle, as I am just a plain American with just enough to appreciate life and happiness. However, friendship is the only reward I can guarantee you. God bless whoever should find this letter, Frank Hyostick. When Breda found Frank's message, she was 18 years old. Today, that message has taken me to Dingle to meet Breda's eldest son, Tom Hand, who runs charter trips around the harbour. My mother never really spoke about it very much. She's a very private kind of person and she kind of kept herself to herself. But I remember as we were growing up, I was the oldest of 10 kids in the family. And there was a lot of newspaper cuttings and old photographs in biscuits in boxes, as usual, in any house back in the... I was born in 1960, in the early 60s. And I remember I learned more through the newspaper cuttings or whatever than from what I heard as such. But uh, the Irish press at the time did it quite a bit. And it was a big story at the time. And I think the main reason was kind of after the war years and depression and everything, people wanted good news stories. And this was kind of a, I suppose, a love story of his time as such. You know? So you're both the Lady Breeder, named after your mum? That's correct, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, she had the privilege of launching the boat and breaking the bottle. So that was a big thrill for her at the time. But um, you know, she was a bit feeble at the time, but oh, she relished it. She enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm as good as the Queen now, she says. <laughs> Tom's offered to bring me out on the Lady Breda to get a bottle-eye view of Canard Strand. I can see the length of, of the strand now. That's, that's the beach there, yeah? That's the beach there, yeah, and it hasn't changed a bit. And where she lived in was maybe a mile away, further up towards the village of Canard. And see, at the time, a lot of people, there was a lot of rick and stuff was washed in on the beach. You know, you, you got your firewood from the beach, you got uh, all sorts of things. I mean, Thomas Gerald, I remember him one time telling me that when he was a kid, he lived about three, four miles away in the village of the small, and he has come down the beach and he picked up on, it was his first time I ever seen a, a bio or a pin washed in on the beach, and a light bulb. They didn't have light bulbs back then, obviously, it was candles and uh, oil lamps. And he had this last bulb and he didn't know what it was. And he, it, was it was like a treasure as such, you know. But it, a lot of stuff got washed in on the beaches then, you know. What's interesting is if, as, you, as you go along here, it's, it, there's rocks absolutely everywhere. I have not you know where they are. <laughs> but if you're a message in a bottle, the chances of getting smashed were really high. Absolutely, yeah, but uh, the prevailing currents are the Gulf Stream from kind of southern, the southern American continent all the way up to kind of the Irish coast. And if you head west from here, what's the first thing you hit? Oh, uh, if you go straight west, oh, I'd say Newfoundland. <laughs> We're on the same latitude as Newfoundland. This is the road up from the beach 
up to what was Kennard, where Breda lived. Unfortunately, um, there's nothing left now, just um, a bend in the road. It's all gone. And ahead of us once again, the beach, and beyond that, the Atlantic. Morning. Morning, sir. Just checking in. Okay. And where are you flying to today, sir? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, okay. Are you checking any bags in? Sending out a message in the bottle is all about chance and faith. Faith that someone will find it, and the chance that it won't get smashed or lost or eaten by one of those sea monsters that used to crawl all over maps. From talking to Breda's first cousin, Tom Fitzgerald, I knew Frank came from Pennsylvania, but that's pretty much all I knew since the events in this story took place long before the internet was invented, and for the most part, Google hadn't caught up yet. All I found online was Frank's obituary. He had died in 2009 and was survived by his son, Terry. So in keeping with the spirit of Frank's endeavor, I landed stateside with nothing in my pocket but Terry's name and a number for someone who might be able to help me. Meet librarian Jennifer Prusnik. Okay, well first, as I said, I looked in those file cabinets because we keep clippings on Johnstown personalities and he wasn't in there. So then I went on the computer and I checked a news article database to see if perhaps he was mentioned in there even though our paper is not indexed in that database. Uh, it wasn't the reason I'm in a Pennsylvania library is that Breda replied to Frank's letter and the post-war American press fell in love with the impossibly romantic story of an Irish Colleen and an American GI. So this is the microfilm then, yeah? This is the microfilm and this is the machine I used because... As yet, most of those news clippings haven't been digitized. They are still on microfilm and I'm hoping that they can help me find Frank's son, Terry. And I just loaded the machine. Ah, yes. ah there yes. it is. There we go. And there's the man. Yes. There we go, Frank. Yeah. Frank Haystack, yes. Yeah, man of letters, 1945. <laughs> Note found in a bottle created a buzz. And people had heard of it. I asked them. They just could not pin down when it was in the paper. They vaguely remembered it. It would seem that my visit to the library was to be more productive than I'd hoped. For by chance, the man whose microfilm machine we'd borrowed was listening in. Thank you very much. Oh, well, you're Have you heard the story? So what's the story oh, here? Oh, Mr. Haystack was in the army. And oh, he, the guy that threw the he bottle threw the, the bottle, Yeah, yes. and you're from Ireland. <laughs> and you found, and someone found, I've heard about that my entire life. My mother lived in the same area where he lived. Right, so you know the story. I know the story. W would people in this area know about Frank? <sighs> Boy, my aunt's probably one of the only ones that may be still, and she's in a nursing home, though they're all kind of deceased. Yeah, but you know about it. You're I know deceased. the story. I've heard the story my whole life. Yeah, he lived in Minersville, and yes, I heard the whole tale. Yes, and you're an Irishman. So we've come to make a documentary about it. Oh, really? Yeah. I should get my Irish wife to meet you guys, and she'd really love you. <laughs> By the following day, I'd made contact with Frank's son, Terry, and his wife, Catherine. 
Come on in. <laughs> I always walk him out of the house. Hello. Hi, how are you? So I'm glad to nice meet to you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hello, dog. <laughs> this is Chunky. Do you like dogs? I like dogs. Okay, he's he's a corgi mixed with a yellow lab. Very good. And when I brought him home, Terry um, said he's short, fat, and ugly, and I would have never brought him home. And I said, "Well, I married you, didn't I?" <laughs> At their house, I was in for some surprise. The pool table in the cellar was covered in scrapbooks, newspaper clippings. And photos. Frank had carefully preserved everything to do with this story. But more importantly were a pile of letters from Brida. It turns out that Frank and Brida had written to each other over a 13 year period between 1946 and 1959. During this time Brida wrote over 70 letters to Frank and he'd cared for each and every one of them keeping the letters in their original envelopes. There are over 70 letters here, uh, Peter, uh, that they're all from, from Brita to my dad, and uh, all in its original condition. Have you actually read them all? I read through some of them, not all of them. It's very nice handwriting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, follow, I can read it. Canard West, Lisbon, County Kerry. 25th of August, 1946. Dear Mr. Hoistek, I have found your bottle and note. I'll just tell you the whole story. I live on a farm at the above address, as you can see on the southwest coast of Ireland. On Friday, 23rd morning, I drove the cows to the fields beside the sea and then went for a walk on the strand called Bale. It's an inlet of Dingle Bay. Well, my dog was running before me and I saw him stop and sniff something lying on the sand and then he went off in pursuit of a seagull. I found the object was a brown bottle, and I saw there was a paper in it. The cork of the bottle crumpled in my fingers. How the note kept dry, nobody can understand. So I sat there on the beach, and I read it. I thought at first I was dreaming. Well, imagine the bottle has been on sea for eight months next Sunday, August the 25th. Who knows where it's been since? The hand of providence must surely have guided it. Well, a few words about myself. I'm an Irish Colleen, 18 on the 11th of November. I'm tall, slim and dark-haired with dark blue Irish eyes. I'm Irish to the backbone, as they say. You mentioned offering no reward to the finder of the bottle. Well, I ask for no reward, as it was a very pleasant surprise. Wishing you ever good luck... Your loving friend, Brida. Okay, Peter, you have a good safe trip, and we'll see you when you get back. We're going to have a good dinner. Although all of Brida's treasured letters survive, back in Ireland there is no sign of that biscuit tin containing Frank's letters. They seem lost to time. But at least with one half of the correspondence, we can get an insight into this long-distance friendship. And thanks to Terry, a chance to get to know his father. Uh, this is called Iron Street. This is where uh, my dad had lived uh, when he started writing letters back and forth to Brita. Uh, lived in 184 Iron Street. And the house, you can't really visualize it, but was in this open, open lot here. 
The house is gone, isn't it? Subsequently, it's been ripped down. Yeah. Uh, Minersville, PA, which is a suburb of Johnstown, is a very old, old, small mining town, uh, pretty much with just two streets. I, I would gather he probably spent in and around uh, more than half his life in this little area. So all the letters from Ireland, from Rita, uh, in that period would have well, come to would have come to here, yeah. Yeah. And Very. your dad would have written the letters here to go to Breda. Yeah, yeah, in about this this little tiny community, yes. You don't know where the post box was, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, dad was uh, born in 1924, so he grew up during that great, that, that era called the Great Depression in the United States. So the family was poor, the children of a family of, of seven children. And his dad told me the story at one time that he was so poor that uh, he had to walk to school without shoes on. And uh, a janitor who worked for the school felt so bad for him, he, he gave him his, his own shoes to, to wear. Uh, they didn't fit quite nicely, but uh, at least they were shoes that kept his feet at least moderately warm. Having looked through all the letters Terry gave me, it's clear that although Frank and Breda corresponded for 13 years, the vast majority of letters were between 1946 and 52. During this time, Frank left the army and moved back to Minersville. They're great letters, just two young people getting to know each other. They are at times funny and insightful and throw lots of colour at the black and white past. Twelfth of October, 1946. Dear Frank, Well, I am enclosing my photo. It's not a very good one. Of course, I'm not a film star, but I think I could do better than that. 20th we of May, 1947. Dear Frank, I am enclosing a birthday card and another from Mother. I would love to send you something for your birthday, but we are not allowed to send packages out of this old country. 15th of June, 1947. Dear Frank, you mentioned trying for a job overseas. Well, why not come to Ireland? Gee, that'd be grand, would it not? 7th of February, 1948. Dear Frank, I just received your cake, and I really don't know how to thank you for it. 2nd of September, 1949. Dear Frank, you asked me if anybody has television sets here. Well, we have not got as far as that yet. Of course, they are very numerous in Dublin, but they have not got to the country yet. This month is the anniversary of the finding of the bottle. It was the 23rd of August, I think I found it. When you come to think of it... Even after reading just one half of a six-year-long conversation, by early 1952, it's clear that something is going on. Frank had been saving $80 a month to travel to Ireland. These pen pals were actually going to meet up. No wonder the press were so interested. 15th of February, 1952. Dear Frank, I got your lovely Valentine card. It was really very nice of you to send it. I had my teeth out on January the 26th. Of course, I felt very funny with them out at first, but I dare say I'll get used to it until I get my fault set, which will be about June. I'm wondering what is the news you're having for me. I'll guess. It's about coming to Ireland. Am I right? So write soon. I'm hoping to hear that news. 
On the 5th of August, 1952, 27-year-old Frank Hjostek flew into Shannon Airport to meet Breda, who by now was 24. There's no one in America now who can shed any light on this part of the story. But in the house where Frank spent his last years, there is a scrapbook. What am I hoping to find? Something. Anything. This time, I'm trusting in faith. Again. This then is the scrapbook, is it? It is. Um, I'm looking through the scrapbook now. Uh, he has uh, his original passport that he uh, had to have the travel from the U.S. to Ireland and back. It seems, looking at this, he, he, he must have kept everything. Uh, yet Dad was, uh, I, the best way to define him was a sentimental guy. Oh gosh, so, that, that looks like the, an airline <laughs> ticket? It is. Uh, it's uh, Ham American Airways. To Shannon Airport, yeah. yeah. And also in there I see, hang on a second, they look like old-fashioned bus tickets. He kept his bus tickets. Uh, uh, yes, Peter. I mean, uh, he kept every ticket. Uh, yeah, he kept the bus tickets. It doesn't say what these tickets are for. It just says Chorus Umper Aaron. And it says there's three tickets. One for five shillings, one for nine pence, or nine old pence, and one for seven pence. So I guess one was the, the ticket from Shannon to Limerick. One was the ticket uh, from Limerick to Tralee, because he mentions that in a letter. And one must be the final leg of the journey he took with Breda. To Les Paul. Interesting, yes. Uh, so, glad you could fill in that, those gaps, yeah. Mm. At the back of Frank's scrapbook, there's a pile of press clippings, and they tell a version of what happened next. The first reference to Frank's trip to Ireland appears in the local paper, the Johnstown Democrat. It's dated 15th May, 1952. Thereafter, the story goes into hibernation, only to spring back to life in late July, some two weeks before Frank arrives in Ireland. After that, the story of the GI and the Irish milkmaid who met through a message in a bottle is picked up by the newswires, and within 24 hours, it's gone global. New York Herald Tribune, Sunday, August 3rd, 1952. Frank Hyestake will embark at 10.30 tonight on a Pan-American World Airways plane to Ireland to introduce himself to Brita O'Sullivan, a milkmaid in Lispol. New York County Journal, Care. Monday, August 4th, 1952. Frank Hyestack, 27, will be loaded down with all sorts of gifts to bring laughter to a Colleen's eyes and heart when he flies tonight to an Irish milkmaid whom he met through an army aspirin bottle. Charlie, he says romance was not mentioned in the letters, but his gifts made it hardly look like a business trip. Time Magazine, 18th August, 1952. Last week, with a round-trip ticket and $350 extra in his best suit, some nylons and a musical powder box in his valise, and reporters and photographers surrounding him, Frank Hayostack boarded a plane to fly to his blue-eyed Colleen. Only an orange man, and a sour one at that, could resist such a beginning to an international romance. Meantime, in Kerry, Breda is making last-minute arrangements to meet up with Frank, but already the media storm front is making itself felt. Dear Frank, I understand you are to cross on Monday night and arrive at Turley on Tuesday. Now, I will go into Turley on the early morning bus and I will wait at the station until the last Limerick bus comes in. If there is any hitch and we fail to meet, go to Benner's Hotel and send me a telegram stating your plans. Well, goodbye till we meet. I almost forgot to tell you, 
The Irish papers are on to our story, and I am besieged by phone calls from reporters. I'm like a criminal, ducking the law, as I give the story to the Irish news agency, and I promise them to give it to no one else. Well, all the best, and I hope you have a nice journey. Breda. The next thing we were told, yes, the man in the bottle was coming to Dingle, and uh, he was going to call and see Breda. At the time, Tom Fitzgerald was just 12 years old. Now he's the only person alive who remembers the international media circus that swept into Dingle, hungry for a story. And the papers got a hold of this and they started putting a different twist in it all together. And they were, I'd say, putting romance in it and that this guy was going to marry her. And then they never met, you know. New York Herald Tribune, Thursday, August 7th, 1952. Dingle, County Kerry, Ireland. XGI Frank Hyastak and the pretty Irish milkmaid who found his name in a bottle that washed ashore shyly held hands today. Villagers were betting six to four they'll be married. We haven't discussed the question of marriage yet, said Frank. Up to now, we've just been pen friends. Brida blushed and flashed a smile at Frank. Well, after all, we only met a few hours ago, she said. Up to then, he was only a man in the bottle. I remember quite a number of reporters following them in different places. I can't remember who the reporters were, but I do know that uh, reporters followed them everywhere they, they went, and they were going in no place particular. It was like a, a returned relation, and, and probably went to Killarney, and, showed Frank around Killarney and the, the sites that were there at the time. The, the papers were, were paying for quite a lot of this. They were nearly staged. Oregon Times, Thursday, August 7th, 1952. Wedding hinted, affair begun by bottle from our correspondent. Frank and Brita met briefly Tuesday night at Tralee, 30 miles north of here. Brita then returned to her thatched roof cottage in a lonely little village of Kennard. Frank took a room in Fox's lodging house in Dingle, about four and a half miles away. Brita went down to get Frank yesterday, driving a pony cart. They rode back to Kennard for Frank, meeting Brita's folks. They had tea with cakes bought specially by the O'Sullivans in Dingle. Then Frank and Brita planned a quiet stroll down by the rocky beach on nearby Dingle Bay, where Frank's bottle washed ashore. Miss Mary Breener, proprietress of Dingle's only hotel, said, if Brita did nothing else, at least she brought business to this quiet village. Take me back to 52. The country was a very, very different place then, wasn't it? Ireland was a very, very different place. Oh, yes. I've tried to put my own views and thoughts together uh, over the years because I said someone will come along and, and they won't understand. I remember a time when there was only one telephone in the parish and five telephones in the whole peninsula. There was only one car in the parish. There was no tractor. If I got up at night or, or before going to bed, if I walked out, it was darkness. There wasn't one piece of light to be seen anywhere. Frank arrives over from Philadelphia into into all this. Do you remember what his thoughts were and how different a place Ireland was to what he was used to? 
What he thought of Ireland uh, must have been strange because it was definitely a strange world at the time. Uh, you know, coming to some place where there was no electricity, no toilets, no nothing. How did you get about? Was it a, a bicycle or something? The funny, I, I think trying to think the other day, how the hell did he get about? I just can't remember. Uh, he just appeared. Off of smoke. <laughs> As to how Frank and Breda got on during his stay, and indeed what Frank thought of everyday life in the Emerald Isle, the only insight we get is in an interview he gave to the New York Herald Tribune. After the first week, Breda got sort of cold. The English papers played a joke on her. They said she swam out to get my bottle when she really found it on the shore and she was insulted. They asked her if she was getting married to me and she said, no, I want to remain a spinster. They have a fireplace for heat and hay over the roof and they have a wooden table and cupboard made out of wooden shelves. You could notice the colors on the dishes, blue and browns and greens. They would get up at five o'clock and take the milk down to the creamery. That's about three miles on the donkey cart. I would come at 10 o'clock and in the afternoon they would feed the hogs and chickens. They'd take the cows into a fence field at 8 o'clock, and then they'd crochet a little and go to bed at 9. The last bus for Dingle, where I stayed, left at 6.30, so I rented a push bicycle to see her more. My dad, he enjoyed the publicity. Uh, he, he felt like it was part of the story. He always thought the story was worth telling, and it made an exciting story, so... Uh, it was, quite frankly, his 30 minutes of fame. I guess the only troubling aspect of all, of all the press was, uh, you know, as the press goes at times, tried to build it up as a, a big romance uh, that was potentially budding, and uh, it, it, it didn't help in them in terms of something, having some quality time to spend together. Associated Press, Shannon, Ireland, August 21st. Hyostack blames cows for ruining romance. Ex-GI Frank Hyostack sadly bade farewell to Ireland tonight, blaming cows and people for ruining his romance with a pretty Irish milkmaid. Frank said, Brita O'Sullivan devoted most of her time to looking after her cows, when all I wanted was to be with her. Frank, a 27-year-old Johnstown, PA steelworker, said he flew to Ireland two weeks ago, hoping to marry Brita and give their storybook romance a happy ending. But while the world winked and waited expectantly, the couple kissed only the Blarney Stone and announced there just wasn't any romance. Asked why Brito, why Brito had, not had not seen him, him off, Frank, Frank said, said she was too busy on the farm. farm. I, I wish he added with a wiry smile, smile. someone would shoot her cows, and that was just his sense of humor, uh, going back to you know, how my dad was built. He didn't mean anything more than that than... A joke. With no happy ever after in sight, the press quickly lost interest. One of the last news clippings has Breda harvesting oats while the bus for Tralee trundled Frank over the Kerry Mountains and out of her life. Standing on Dingle Pier, Breda's eldest son, Tom, remembers his mother as a very private person. Oh yeah, she was, yeah, she was, she kept very much to herself. She was a fantastic mother, but she, she, um, that part of her life, she didn't really, 
it happened and if she asked her she would tell you a little bit about it but she wouldn't tell you the whole story you know but uh, I do remember her saying one time that she did bring it up that we we got to her talking about it that um, they had no privacy at all when he came to Ireland did she find that really hard then because the man traveled an awful long way to sort of to meet his pen pal didn't he oh absolutely he did yeah he did yeah he did and um, I think he found it had bought him didn't realize that it was going to be a story like that and I suppose people are more introverted and shyer than both probably him and, and her. And uh, when all this media intrusion, they wanted the story and they wanted a happy ending, I think, and all that. Did she regret picking up the bottle in the end, do you think? Oh, I don't think so. Oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't say so, no. It was just a part of her life, like it was a story and it was a happy story. And she, you know, it was one of these experiences, but I don't think she never had any regrets. No. Now, you'll be forgiven for thinking that's the end of the story. But remember chance and faith? Well, they're joined now by fate. But first, what happened next? Well, Frank and Breda went their separate ways. Yes, they continued writing to each other for another seven years. But from now on, the letters are less intimate, more businesslike. One of the last letters is dated 1959, and it's no more than a couple of lines long. It goes, Dear Frank, I am enclosing a book of sweep tickets. If you manage to sell this book, you will have two free tickets. You must put the address on all tickets as Kennard West, as we are not allowed to send them out of the country. And that's it. There are no more letters. Breeder here in Ireland at home well, had a very serious relationship with uh, the man that she married afterwards, uh, Peter Rand. A uh, fabulous guy, and uh, that was it. They raised a great family. They had ten children. I mean, I'm, I'm still visited by by all the family. My dad was married uh, for the first time, briefly, uh, for just slightly a year. Uh, ultimately, it got annulled by the Catholic Church. My dad did get married a second time. Uh, she had uh, five uh, boys to a previous marriage, and then I was born shortly thereafter, about a year or so, after they got married. Your mum died when you were quite young, didn't she? Yes, unfortunately my mum did pass away uh, early in my life. Uh, I was uh, just a little, about four and a half. Uh, she had died of cancer. Uh, and he tried to keep the family intact for for as long as he could, but... In that situation, it was quite difficult. Um, so many of my half-brothers at that point had gone to live to relatives on my mom's side of family. So it was left with just my dad and I over the years. Both Frank and Breda married in 1959, which would explain why the letters stopped in that year. But can the change in the content and the tone of the letters after Frank's visit be put down to just press intrusion? Something didn't sit right with me. I took Frank's scrapbook back to my guest house and spent a night scouring it, looking for, again, I'm not quite sure what. And that's when I found it. An anonymous brown paper bag, wrapped tight and secured with a rubber band. Inside were three letters. The first was in Frank's writing and was written on the day he left Ireland. August 20th, 1952, 1952. Limerick, Limerick Hanratty Hotel, Hotel, Era. Dear Breda, 
I tried I so hard to tell, tell you something, but you never gave me the chance to, and I did not write and tell you before as I was afraid it would stop my trip to Ireland. And I so much wanted to meet you and Mother. You see, one time I was tricked to a marriage with a non-Catholic that lasted only a few months, and I divorced her. However, I paid for that price many a time, and I believe I deserve a happy life again. I told the priest my story some time ago, and he said I still could get married as I hadn't been married in church. I do hope you still write to me as I would miss your letters very much. You were cold at times, but I guess everything has confused you, reporters, photographers, and the many people watching. Because of all the publicity, I hope you don't think I'm taken for granted that we will get married. I would not think that at all unless you felt the same. I know you'll make an awful good wife, and I wouldn't regret it if I was chosen your man. 24th of August, 1952. Dear Frank, I must say, I was more than shocked at your letter and the facts it contained. There are just a few things I'd like to tell you about the Catholic religion. First of all, a Catholic never marries outside the church. Secondly, a Catholic never enters a divorce court. If you married a non-Catholic outside the Catholic church, most certainly you were not married. Why did you not tell me this before? We've been corresponding for six years and don't try to tell me you did not get the chance to tell me about it. I suppose you thought you could trick me into marriage as you were tricked. Evidently, you thought I was as green as the land I come from and that I'd be so overwhelmed with your charms that I'd marry you on the spot. Did you think you could corrupt the morals of a decent, God-fearing Irish girl? No. Frank, I could see through you after the first day. I knew there was more to you than met the eye. As for marrying you, do you for a moment imagine I'd marry a man who'd gone through a phony marriage with a non-Catholic outside the church? I just want you to know that we, Irish Catholics, value our religion more than anything on earth. More than our lives, even. Our forefathers died for their faith, and so would we if the occasion arose. I can just imagine the consternation of faces of the people of Lisbon. But you don't need to be one bit afraid that I'll tell them. I'd be ashamed to admit it. Thanking you and your mother for the gifts. Yours truly, Breda O'Sullivan. The third letter in the hidden brown bag was written two weeks later. It's from Frank to Breda, and it's the last time there's any mention of a relationship. Yes, Breda. I could have told you in my six years of writing about this. I wanted to, but I was afraid then that I could never see you and Mother. You see, I thought maybe God wanted my marriage to go on the rocks and meant you for me. So I had to make the trip to find out. And I don't want you and Mother to be afraid that I will come back. I will someday like to renew friendships, but as you ask, I will keep away from you. Well, good luck and may God be with the intentions of you and Mother. Sincerely yours, Frank Haystick. So the world kept spinning. By 2007, when Frank and Breda were in their late 70s, Terry Haystick decided to visit Ireland and finally put faces to the names he was so familiar with. Yes, I wanted to go over to Ireland to come full circle and somehow complete the rest of the story. Uh, more for my interests as well as uh, acknowledging to my dad that I was highly interested in the story and wanted to meet up with some of the folks that he met up with and some of the sites and uh, I was hoping very much to, to meet up with Brita. And so Terry and his family came here to, to sort of 
walk in his father's footsteps. They did, yeah. He said to me, what's the chance of meeting up with Breda? And I said, well, I can ring her and tell her that you're around and uh, that there'd be no harm in just saying hello for old time's sake. Breda was alive at the time and she met Terry and the family for about a quarter of an hour and laughed at the whole story and then that was it. But what I think helped my dad to make this conclude as a story is, is I was able to write to him that Brita had no hard feelings towards dad. It's just the way the story played out and people's lives go in different directions at times. My, my dad was an emotional guy. You know, he could cry easily at a sad movie. And I could see within his eyes, uh, I could see that glee in his eye and that sort of wanting to, to shed a tear or two that this story has come full circle and it, it ended okay. After having 10 children and living a full life, Breda passed away on the 23rd of August, 2009. Frank died some three months later. As people die and memories fade, all that's left of this story are a scattering of letters, some photographs and curling clips of newspaper. The young boy who had dreamt of a fairy tale in a bottle story spent the second half of his life living in a time capsule of his own making. You mentioned to me that he liked to be surrounded by his memories and that he used to stick stuff in the wall and just looking at the walls all around me, uh, I think you've been busy patching it, have you? It looks like it's got um, filler all over the walls. Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, Dad had photographs and memories stapled through throughout all the rooms. Uh, stapled to the walls. Stapled to the walls, uh, so they wouldn't have any danger of falling off the walls. Uh, so he wanted to make sure that they were uh, staying there for a long period of time. So, and he had a theme to each wall. To your right, immediate right, he had that wall dedicated to the story of Ireland and throwing the bottle in the ocean and Brito O'Sullivan picking it up. Uh, he had a picture of Brita serving him tea. Uh, he had a copy of the original letter on the wall, various newspaper clippings. I believe the rosary that Brita had sent him as a gift um, and other mementos uh, to help explain the stories. What started on Christmas Day 1945 with a bottle being tossed overboard on a journey of chance and faith has, over the past several months, taken me on another journey of chance and faith. I've met people who weren't born at the time who've been touched by that bottle. And through a combination of curiosity and luck, I've uncovered a story of love, loss and redemption. But of all the letters and messages I've read, the one that says the most is there for everyone to see. Can you read me what it says on the head? On, on the headstone. Yep, it says Frank L. Hyostek, uh, June 11th, 1924 to November 15th, 2009. It says Frank Hyostek met in Tralee, Ireland with Brita O'Sullivan, who found a message laden bottle he had tossed from a Liberty ship seven years before. Uh, those were his own words that he put together that 
he wanted on inscribed on the on the tombstone. Must have meant a lot to him for him to have that on his tombstone. Queerly, yes, it, it was a, a part of his life that impacted him greatly, and uh, one that uh, you know that he cherished. Uh, that he had that experience of meeting up with uh, Brito O'Sullivan and having a penship with her. Uh, it certainly was one that uh, helped, you know, helped define his, his life, yes. Message in a Bottle was produced by Peter Mulryan and Liam O'Brien for RTE Radio in Ireland. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. You can put a message in a bottle and throw it our way, but email is, let's face it, a tad more reliable. Write to us. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, a gruff, foul-mouthed cafe customer and the waitress who gives him a run for his money. Stay tuned. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, stories about chance encounters that change lives. As a former waitress of many years, I can tell you that the people who happen to sit at your tables can make or break your day. That said, they usually have little impact on your life as a whole. Until the day they do. Jennifer Ludwigson told her story for the Strangers podcast from KCRW. A word of warning, however, there's quite a bit of unsavory language tossed around in this story, probably not for younger or more sensitive ears. Here is Big Jim and Smokey Joe. Two years ago, I was working at a restaurant in North Hollywood, and there was this guy that would come in always at a table for one, and they called him Smokey Joe. He was, at the time, 77 years old when I met him, and the busboys would always be like, that guy's such a pimp, because he was dressed to the tent. You know, just these Art Deco ties and crocodile skin shoes and, you know, this big blinged out Rolex and an ID bracelet that has his name in diamonds. Dapper as can be, but a total <laughs> about the food. Servers hated him. Could not stand to wait on this guy. I had never actually had the pleasure, but I'd heard these horrible stories. He was, he was crass, he would cuss out the food, always ordered off the menu, hated everything that he ordered, but he would still come back like twice a week. But one fateful night, he was finally sat in my section and I was, I was super nervous because I'm, you know, I, I kind of melt down when people are mean to me or swear at me or yell at me. But <laughs> I approached his table and I was just gonna kill him with kindness. I take his order, um, he gets a ribeye, and uh, and so I have to go over and you know, ask the obligatory, how's everything tonight, sir? And he looks at me and he's like, this ribeye tastes like vomit. I, um, 
I, I completely abandoned my kill him with kindness idea. <laughs> and what comes out of my mouth is, why don't you pretend it tastes like p and shut up? And I look at him and he looks at me. I'm like horrified. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. I don't know where it came from. And we're staring at each other for a second and I just walk away. I, I couldn't even drop off the check. I didn't ask him if he wanted dessert or for dinner, drink or coffee. I put the check in the bell folder and I gave it to another server. And I'm like, can you please drop this off? <laughs> and uh, he leaves and I go and pick up his check and I open it up and there's a hundred dollar tip in there. And then sure enough, the next time he came in, he asked to be sat in my section. And uh, and it kind of, I, I became like his personal <laughs> server. It's like, it's totally as good as it gets. It's like the total Helen Hunt, Jack Nicholson relationship that um, he would only come in when I was working. So I, I started to, to ask Joe a lot of questions and to get to know him. And I found out that he was one of eight born to an um, Armenian family of immigrants. And he, um, he joined the Air Force at age 17 to fight during the Korean War, which is so young. And he loved it. He loved flying. Um, and when he came back, he became a self-taught machinist and an entrepreneur. And he ended up running this multi-million dollar business that made parts for airplanes and space shuttles. And um, he did a lot of work for the government. But it all kind of came crashing down when President Reagan, that no good sucking, born in a test tube, motherless son of a had his business audited. And Joe actually ended up becoming a federal felon and he was in the clink for six months. And he's, he maintains his innocence, but he also says, I ran that joint. So Joe told me one night that he, he used to race and own three P-51 Mustangs, which is his favorite plane. And his eyes just lit up. And, uh, and he, he told me how the engine sounded. He's like, sweetheart, you, you know, when, when that engine comes, when, when that propeller is coming, it's, it's like nothing you've ever heard. And I was like, Joe, it sounds that way because it has a, a Rolls-Royce Merlin 60 series engine in it you know it's that it's that Packard 5 1657 I know it's an amazing sound <laughs> he's like wait get the f out of here what how do you know that it turns out that I have a, a grandfather who is a huge lover of vintage war plans as well specifically World War II specifically the p-51 I mean it was it was the greatest airplane of World War II and he made sure I'm his first grandchild he made sure that I went to every air show with him that I knew all about the p-51 his favorite quote about it he told me that um Herman Goring he said the day I saw the Mustangs over Berlin I, I knew the jig was up so Joe and my grandpa, they, they share this, this awe and this love for P-51 Mustangs. But other than that, they could not be more different. You know, my grandpa is Midwestern, working class, family man. Um, you know, he was a railroad engineer for Chicago Northwest. And this is a guy who every morning, my grandma, while she was sleeping, he would make her a pot of coffee, cut her a grapefruit, lay out the funny section of the paper, and he recorded her a good morning message on a handheld recorder every morning. And they've been married 61 years now. So, you know, I've, I've known my whole life that my grandpa's 
deepest dream is to fly in one of these P-51 Mustangs. And, you know, you can at some of these air shows have the opportunity to ride up in the air for money. It's like a 15-minute ride for a couple hundred bucks. And unfortunately, he can never afford it. So it was more his feet on the ground and his eyes up in the sky looking and longing. And I, I have always known how badly he wanted to to be one of those suckers. So I'm, I'm telling Joe this, and he's like, I used to own three of them. I just sold the last one to Tom Cruise. You know, I put in over 5,000 miles in those babies. The next time Joe comes in, you know, we're having our, our, our normal banter and drop off the bill and he pays and then he's leaving and he, he's like, give me your hand. And he puts $2,000 of neatly stacked, crisp $100 bills in my hand and he says, you fly your grandpa out here. You put him up at the Van Nuys Airport Hotel so we can watch all the planes take off and land. And you tell him that he's going to fly in a f***ing P-51. Don't wait. Joe had arranged to borrow this plane that he had sold Tom Cruise back for one, one more joyride. Two weeks later, my grandpa arrives at LAX. No cell phone. He's this little wooden wooden cross around his neck and a duffel bag. And I pick him up. He's traveling by himself, which I don't know when he's <laughs> ever done that without my grandma. And the next morning is going to be the morning. We wake up and it's raining, which means no flight. And I call Joe and I'm like, uh, Joe, what are we going to do? You know, it's raining. It's, it says it's going to rain all morning long. He's like, it's not going to rain. And I'm like, well, yeah, the forecast says it. And he's like, oh, f- those motherless forecast f- it ain't going to rain. <laughs> Okay, so I I drive to Van Nuys. I meet my grandpa there. Joe comes, rolls up in his black Cadillac, and sure enough, 9.45, which is our designated meeting time, the sky is clear, and it becomes perfect Mustang weather. They meet for the first time. My grandpa's in awe. You know, it's like it's like he's meeting someone out of The Godfather, or like Sinatra or something. And then in the distance, we all hear it. We hear the hum of the plane, and it's distinctively the P-51. And my grandpa's eyes, he looks towards the sky, and there's tears in his eyes. And he looks at me, and he's like, I love you. I'm like, I love you, grandpa. And we all help him get into this plane, and it's a converted two-seater. And he goes up for 45 minutes. I'm just the whole time on the phone with my family. They're calling me. I'm calling them. What's happening? I'm taking video. I'm taking picture. Joe is like smoking a cigarette, like cool as a cucumber. And my grandpa touches down and he was, he said, Jenny, I want to go up again. (laughs) You know, it was just, it was, it was a, a longing fulfilled, but also I felt like something, something was complete in him, but something was also kind of like broken open. And then we all went and we had uh, a little lunch together and Joe springs this on us. He's like, all right, Big Jim. He's now dubbed my grandpa Big Jim. You had some uh, some World War II aviation. I think that it's time for some modern aviation. And he tells us that the next day he's arranged for us to go up in a Lear jet over to Vegas for lunch. Now, my grandpa's never been in a Lear. I mean, not many people have. I haven't. Uh, and he's never been to Vegas, never gambled. So next morning, same place, same time, we all get into a Learjet. We fly to Vegas, we have lunch at the Paris, and uh, Joe happens to be this just incredible craps player. He comes up to the table, everybody knows him, you know, the 
pit boss is like, oh, hello, Mr. Kasparov. Joe uh, teaches us how to play craps. We're both like scared because he, he gave us his money to gamble with. And um, so we're like nervous. And uh, my, my grandpa kind of starts, you know, getting a little show-offy. And he, he makes a bet. He hops 10 the hard way, which is saying that on this roll and this roll only, you're going to roll a five and a five. And he hits it. I mean, it was like out of some movie. Everyone's like, ah, at the table, screaming, high fives. You know, he wins a ton of money on this bet. It's like 30 to 1 odds. And I have this amazing picture of him holding his money, big smile on his face by the cashier cage at the Paris Hotel. And um, it was great because he had been kind of worrying about what to buy my grandma for their anniversary. It was their 60th anniversary, and 60 is diamonds. And you know, he didn't know what he was going to be able to afford. And after he hits this, <laughs> this 10 the hard way, he's like... I'm buying her diamond earrings and a necklace. A few months later, my grandpa had a stroke. And he he's changed. His speech is, is a little impaired, and he's had to go through a lot of speech therapy. And his speech therapy actually almost solely consisted of of telling the story. And every nurse, every doctor, every speech therapist, they've heard this story of Big Jim and his weekend with Joe. And it's funny because Tom Cruise, when he bought the plane from Joe, he had rechristened it Kiss Me Kate. But Joe had actually named it The Healer. And that's exactly what it is. Big Jim and Smokey Joe was produced by Leah Tao for her podcast, Strangers, from KCRW. The story was told by Jennifer Ludwigson, who's moved on from waiting tables and is now a writer and actress in Los Angeles. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by Atlas Brewing Company. The Atlas Brew Pub and 710 Lounge Bowling Alley are open seven nights a week, located on Lincoln near Diversity. More information at atlasbeercompany.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.